0: This place, the magnificent Pacific Northwest, is well known for its beauty. Vast mountains, pearly clear rivers, lapis sky, summer days and foggy evenings, air stunningly clear and refreshing. But what is often overlooked is what is known as soundscape, the habitat sounds, whether generated by living or non-living aspects. Eyes are sometimes easy to fool. But ears not so much what is heard resonates the northern winds rustling the evergreens stream water flowing over ancient stones the wild ocean crashing onto the shore train whistles echoing through the canyons eagles and frogs bees and geese waterfalls rain consider The iPhone takes wonderful photos capturing various shades of sun and shadow, barns, glacial villages, selfies, compelling vistas, digital moments in time. But for a sense of place, a true sense of place, it's the soundscape that best captures the sumptuousness, the vast space, the imagination of it all. It's all there, poetry in the air around you. Put yourself outside, wherever you are. Learn to do the work of listening, the precursor to which is learning how to be still. With stillness comes humility. From humility, vast abundance arises. Allow the natural soundscape to penetrate, soothing and healing, mind-opening, tranquil and alive. Don't tamper, modify, amplify, turn up the sound or turn down the sound. There's no reason to do any of that. Just listen. Some refer to this as the call of the wild. Again, just listen. It really is the call of yourself. Be it. This is Mark Winwood, bringing you the elegant mind Broadcast here on Valley Radio, 104.9 FM, serving Duval, Carnation, and Redmond Ridge in the lower Snoqualmie Valley of Washington State. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's a honor and a pleasure once again to be sharing this time with you. You know, if you listen to this broadcast week to week, I am frequently not just talking about the elegant mind, as it is cultivated by the Tibetan Buddhist mind sciences. That's certainly the, the theme of this program. But it's where we are, it's where we live here in western Washington, the Pacific Northwest, that is really significant and, and a major, major aspect of the energy behind this program. As you may know, I came with Kathy to Washington state about four years ago. Kathy and I lived in Florida and it was a huge move just to pick up. I had a house, Kathy had a house, family, friends. Our lives were spent on the East Coast and it was quite a move to pick up and move all the way across the country. We had a couple of interesting cross-country drives, driving trucks, pulling horse trailer, quite exciting us but uh, and we made it and we made it and we we got here and and you know part of being a I guess a recent arrival relatively recent arrival to the uh, Pacific Northwest we bring fresh eyes to these to the surrounding environs um, because we have we have a real basis for comparing it to what exists elsewhere. Kathy comes from Connecticut I came from New York City we met in Florida and and now we're here. And we find this physical setting to be uh, tremendously provocative, so beautiful. Those of you who are listening, who live here, or are familiar with the Pacific Northwest know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, there's a bit of a, maybe a shock of untouched nature, and coming from central Florida, you know, Kathy and I came from a place where nature was kind of ruined, you know it was different and and here the natural world it's still in some areas you don't have to go very far it's still so pristine we can we can go we can find them easily the air the nighttime air the stars in the sky on a clear night uh, just magnificent so the elegant mind is is a product this program is a product of my background in Tibetan Buddhism in studying and teaching and practicing and learning to clarify and get the best that my mind has to offer at any moment in terms of harmony and kindness and wisdom and generosity. But this place, this place, so supports that, so supports that. So the elegant mind is a product of here. The Snoqualmie Valley, the lower Snoqualmie Valley, the countryside, the trees, the water, the air, the people, the critters live out in the woods. We live up the hill in Duval. We're about six miles up the hill from out of town. And it is is magnificent. And so thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this program in which I'm able to share the beauty of this place with the understandings, the wisdom, the insights of another beautiful place on this planet, which is the Tibetan Plateau and the shadow of the Himalayas. So away we go. Mark Winwood with The Elegant Mind, Valley 104.9. So this broadcast is on the Saturday and Sunday of Father's Day, Father's Day weekend 2018. So we're going to talk a bit about fathers. I want to talk about my experience and my insights. I am a father. I have six children, six wonderful children. The youngest is now 21 years old, and the oldest will be 38 in November. Two grandchildren. But I'm not gonna talk so much about my being a father. I'm going to talk about my father and my fathers. There have been three men in my life who have been father figures. One is my own, my own dad, who's no longer with us, and the other two have been my father's in-law. So we're going to talk about fathers today, and then we'll uh, we'll listen to some music, we'll take a break for promotional announcements, and then we're going to talk about a very famous father, and that is Suddhodana. Suddhodana was the father of Siddhartha, the man of... Who became the Buddha, Sudodana, Siddhartha's dad? We're going to talk about him. He's kind of a maligned character in Buddhist history and the folk tales of Buddhist history, kind of maligned and put up some challenges that Siddhartha needed to overcome in order to find his path and become enlightened. So we're going to talk about him, and I wonder sometimes if the criticism that pseudodonna has had to endure over the centuries is really warranted. Or was pseudodonna just being a dad, just being a dad like anyone, anyone who's listening to this program might be, anyone who's listening to this program, their dad might have been. So it's a Father's Day theme here on The Elegant Mind, Valley 104.9. So, Father's Day, as it arises each year, brings to mind my own father who passed away during his 79th year. You know, while our Dharma studies, our Tibetan mind science studies, our Buddhist studies and practices are usually not about resolving very deeply planted personal issues, but rather cultivating the mind of wisdom in which bodhicitta, awakening, naturally arises, we've got to deal with what comes, and this is Father's Day weekend. As many of you know, intense appreciation of the special kindness of our parents has a very special role in the Tibetan traditions of Buddhist practice, and this is challenging for many Westerners who have had difficult relationships with one or both parents and step-parents, etc., So much so that I've heard that when the Tibetan lamas returned to Asia after first having visited America, they reported being caught most off guard by the ways in which so many of us point to the parents in our lives as the genesis of our deepest, most persistent problems. So, that being what it may, there have been three father figures in my life, one natural, the other two for marriage, All three were significant in vastly different ways and all three are now dead. My own father and I had a spotty relationship. He was a simple man, a hard-working factory worker, the son of immigrants who grew up in the Bronx, New York, with a mind full of issues. In the American get-what-you-can game, he was eclipsed by his younger brother who became a successful executive building and managing strip malls and apartment complexes throughout the United States. My father smoked cigarettes incessantly and defiantly, even while acknowledging the health issues of doing so, and there was an alcohol problem, especially at holiday family gatherings. I don't know why this was so or what he was running from. I suspect it was partially due to his being married to a woman who didn't really respect him. My father and mother met and had married while in high school. They were high school sweethearts. Perhaps she loved him at one point, but I don't believe that really existed ever in in my memory. When I was 18 years old, my father called me into his room, asked me to sit down and shared that his and my mother's marriage was over. This happened at night with the lights off, both of us sitting in complete darkness. He couldn't look me in the eye, couldn't bring himself to connect with me intimately, even in that moment of scorching pain. I guess it was years later I understood how heartbreaking that must have been for him, that moment going through, similar with my own children. After 10 minutes sitting with him, not knowing what to say, I was dismissed. Through the years, we had falling outs, some serious many of them caused by my perceptions of what and why he was doing, what he did, and they accumulated with time. By the end of his life, I had, with a mind of perfectly justified self-righteousness, put him into my past. Although a few hours' drive away, I was not there with him when he died, having already slammed the lid tightly when his funeral was held in New York. I stubbornly did not attend. My first father-in-law was an Italian-American, also the son of immigrants. He was a mechanical genius, a gritty, feisty, fiercely opinionated, passionate railroader, the proud engineer of the first high-speed Amtrak. It was Conrail then, Metroliner, between New York City and Washington, D.C. He loved the railroad having served in the Rail Corps in Europe during World War II and took great pride talking about his friend and regular train rider, Senator Joe, who would regularly ride the train to Washington, D.C. and then take him into the Senate cafeteria where they'd have Yankee bean soup together. This was some 30 years ago. Senator Joe became the vice president of the United States, Joe Biden. He was a great guy, my father-in-law. Zany and unpredictable. He would laughingly, loudly break into a silly little Italian jig when he was happy. He was also a loving father-in-law to this long-haired kid who, with his liberal ideas and outlooks, was so vastly different from him. At times, we had a very much button-pushing, Archie-Meathead relationship. He being Archie, me being the meathead, all for fun never manifesting as anything damaging. I believe when his daughter and I divorced, which was my doing, it broke his heart. In the years after, we never contacted one another and I was not around to witness his health decline, which was severe and drawn out. At the time, I considered this a blessing, preserving his healthy image in my mind's eye. When he passed, his funeral church was packed with people. I had loved him. But knowing I had so painfully disappointed him and preferring to keep the memory of that away from the family at that time, I was not one of the attendees. Once again, I was a no show. Father in law number two, I never met, but he had a significant impact as well. He was a Midwestern, OBGYN, who was much loved in his community. Apparently, he was not only a fine doctor. There was much talk and a posthumous lawsuit involving allegations of illegal prescriptions for a patient he was allegedly sleeping with. He was found innocent of those charges. What was clear was that my second wife, his youngest of three daughters, was enamored with him. When he committed suicide one night, without leaving a note to explain why, express love, or say goodbye, I believe the abandonment left a hole in her heart, that affected her both short and long-term in significant and wearying ways. At the time and in the years to follow, I almost completely self-absorbed in my own difficulties. A hungry ghost in our relationship was of no help at all, and in being no help became a hurtful presence. The patterned seeds of divorce had been planted, and years later they blossomed. In our Tibetan Buddhist traditions, understanding that we have had endless rebirths through which all beings have many times been each of our parents, we generate the mind of equanimity toward all, and from that emerges a special attitude of bodhicitta, the awakened mind, by recalling the love of our parents, and in particular, our dear, precious mothers, We remember with immeasurable appreciation how in this life our mother suffered the discomfort of pregnancy, carried us and through great pain, birthed us and suckled us and nurtured us and protected us, sacrificing countless nights of rest and sleep for us. We do not forget how they put us first and foremost in those days of our infancy when, if not for their unfailing love and kindness, we would have perished. And there's so much more. This is wonderful to realize it's fantastic to contemplate and heart opening to meditate upon. And again, remaining mindful that all sentient beings have been our mothers through infinite past lifetimes, we infuse with responsibility and gratitude all the intentions and actions of our everyday lives but we can talk about our mothers more at another time. Now, this weekend, Father's Day weekend, 2018. I suggest this time is for our fathers. I am sure my father never heard of Bodh Gaya, the town in India where Siddhartha gained his enlightenment. And he probably thought of Buddhism, if he thought of it at all, as something weird and foreign, probably otherworldly. But here sits his son, a student of Buddhism, using Dharma practice, the best tool I've ever encountered to work through some of the issues I put between us. I'm sharing this with you because we all have fathers, or have had fathers, or are fathers, or were fathers, or will one day be fathers in this life or in the lives to come. And father's love and caring is, has, and one day might be a fundamental aspect of the mechanics of our lives. Yes, our fathers may have had flaws. There may be things they did or do that we don't understand. They may not meet or have met our expectations. They may have even caused some damage. We may feel justified in the disappointment, anger, and hatred we hold toward them. But the Dharma path is one that leads directly through our painful briar patch of memories toward authentic empathy, and then insightful understandings, compassion, and forgiveness. I speak not of insights focused on ourselves, but outwardly so, empathetically perceiving and understanding our father's frailties, their pressures, their kleshas, their afflictive emotions, their karma, their suffering. So no, this is not easy. Many of our difficulties have hardened into emotional barricades and ramparts. Some of us have become stubborn because we feel regret or guilt over a situation we feel too uncomfortable to change. And then there is the discomfort of coming upon our own weaknesses and failings, unearthing our own fears and insecurities, our senses of loss and what could have or should have been, our regrets. So as I say, this is not easy, but think about this. And if it resonates with you, if you intuitively know the way to health and healing is to be honest and to go through the discomfort rather than burying it, and you're inclined to engage, rejoice, rejoice in this insight, and then get going. Begin by quieting down. Breathe empty. Allow judgments to recede and compassionate insights to arise. Much will follow. It is worthy of the effort. Do so, and some profound benefits may be realized, including forgiveness, not only for your father or parents, but for yourself as well. Use the forgiveness to bring you to a mind of acceptance. Try to consider the extraordinary presence your fathers have played in your life And remember that all sentient beings were, in previous lifetimes, your father's too. And all the wonderful things about your life, including its own being, could never have occurred without your father. The old saying, don't do something, just sit and reflect. In its simplicity, done regularly, this is an extraordinarily powerful practice. So if you're a father or one day will be, please try to see and be mindful from your children's side of that most crucial role you play in their lives. Strive to think about this without the contaminants of your own self-centered viewpoints and afflictions. Whether directed at your fathers, your children, or both, honor them by honoring the special presence of father. Then take the essence of that honor, the appreciation and gratitude, and turn it inside out, allowing it to manifest in appropriate and meaningful ways for every being you encounter. Consider Father's Day to be a day when fathers are not only honored and thanked, but also a day when the door is especially wide open for fathers ...to purposefully show their own children and family members... ...the precious joys being a father have allowed them to experience and be. This is the pith essence of the Tibetan Buddhist path. The uniquely precious kindness of our parents is recognized and appreciated... ...and most of all manifested without discrimination to and for sentient beings everywhere. As for my father... In his absence, things have changed. I am no longer confined to knowing or remembering him through the lens of my own deluded, self-cherishing notions and judgments. That lid, I believe, is off for good. I smile as I realize I needed to engage in the ancient Buddhist curriculum to see things this way, to allow the clouding pain and anger to melt away, allowing this clear, uncomplicated view to emerge to be able to think and feel and say sincerely and perhaps more heartfelt than ever before with hands folded and head bowed. Happy Father's Day, Dad. This is Mark Winwood with The Elegant Mind. We're going to listen to some music from Bobby Vega, a regular here on our program, and we will return. Thank you so much for listening. Okay, we're back. This is Mark Winwood with The Elegant Mind. That song that we heard is titled Rocco, R-O-C-C-O, Rocco. And it's a special Father's Day song. It was written by, as I mentioned, Bobby Vega, played by Bobby Vega. And Rocco is uh, his first son. The name of his son, that song was written right after Rocco was born. Playing in the background of that cut was the Turtle Island Quartet very well-known group of musicians out of San Francisco, multiple Grammy Award winners, and really known for their, uh, their trends, their new trends in chamber music for strings. So again, that was Rocco in honor of Bobby's son. That song was recorded in 1997. Well continuing on with our father's day theme I warned you at the beginning of this broadcast that I was going to tell you about Suddhodana. Suddhodana is the uh, was the dad, the father of Siddhartha, the young boy who grew up to in his manhood achieve enlightenment, the fully awakened mind and become known as the Buddha, the great teacher. The professor the Buddha So I'd like to tell you a little bit about uh, Sudodhana. It's an interesting story. Sudodhana is believed to have been a kind of a king back in uh, what is today southern Nepal, right on the Nepali-Indian border. And he was believed to have been a royalty. Back then, in those days in India, there were lots of fiefdoms, lots of little kingdoms and there were lots of kings and royalty and serfs and they used to fight wars and try to acquire each other's land and I've heard it said that, that at the time of Siddhartha's birth the uh, the area, the terrain, the, the geopolitical terrain was somewhat like it is in Iran today. So that's the environment in was believed to have been a king and upon his wife's pregnancy being the king he had access to the prophets who would come and give their their ideas, their predictions of what this child was going to be or not be. And one after another, after another, the prophets said that this is going to be a very unusual child. It's going to be a boy who is going to either grow up to be a great king, a great warrior king, exceeding his father's accomplishments, or he's going to be a spiritual warrior, a great spiritual adept. And back then, in those days, to enter onto the spiritual path meant that one would renounce their belongings, renounce their position, and go out and and search and beg and wander. Not something necessarily that a king wants for his children. So the prophets said that the only way that the king is going to be able to keep his son from going out on the spiritual path would be if he had no curiosity about what's in the outside world, no idea of aging, no idea of sickness or, or death or any kind of suffering. In other words, he had to be kept very happy, very content. So as the story goes, Sudodhana did exactly that in his kingdom, the the capital of Kapilavastu. So what he did was he banished elderly people, he banished sick people, he banished poor people. They were all thrown outside the palace walls. And Siddhartha, it's said inside, lived a uh, quite remarkable, wonderful life. He had everything he wanted, he never needed, never desired anything that he didn't have. He was a fantastic athlete, he was a wonderful student. He was royalty, and he never wanted, he never wanted for anything. Suddana went to great lengths to prevent Siddhartha from becoming a spiritual wanderer. But at the age of 29 or so, Siddhartha being curious about what was outside the palace walls and having snuck out against his father's wishes or knowledge, having snuck out and seen elderly people, seen sick people, seen corpses, and seen spiritual wanderers, known in the Buddhist circles as the Four Sights, Siddhartha left. He left his home in search of spiritual answers. He left behind his wife, who was uh, given to him by his father, again, to keep him distracted, keep him happy, give him some in-the-palace responsibilities and his infant son, Rahula. Rahula, the story of Siddhartha's departure is traditionally called the Great Renunciation because Siddhartha just left them, left them to go off on his on his quest. So I'll continue with the story of Siddhartha, but I just want to point out, Sasudodhana so is seen as a, I mean, not a villain or... Or not an evil person, but Sudodana is seen as a great challenge that Siddhartha had to overcome. And in light of Siddhartha becoming an enlightened being, becoming fully awakened, Sudodana is seen as a uh, kind of a selfish, wanting his son to be like him, wanting his son to be a king, wanting his son to have great power. And looking upon the spiritual path as a path, perhaps, of maybe not necessarily a path of weakness, but certainly a path that the son of a king should not be following. And so here it is. It's Father's Day. And, and perhaps we're looking at uh, fatherly ambitions, perhaps with a little bit more of an open eye a little bit more equanimity here and is it uh, was Siddhartha was Siddhartha's dad wrong was was Suddhodana wrong to want his son to follow in his footsteps to want his son to be a great king i mean this was Suddhodana's experience this was how he saw his life this is how he saw you know he was the king he was he was royalty. He was the richest, he was the strongest, He was the most powerful man in his kingdom. He achieved, he lived that life. And this is what he wanted for his son. And he's, you know, I think he's he's a bit of a uh, a character in, in history that uh, one can perhaps feel sorry for and, and any any parent who has seen their child, follow what they believe their calling to be, what they believe their path to be against the wishes of the parent, I think might be able to uh, sympathize, empathize a little bit with Sudodana and what uh, what occurred with his son Siddhartha. So um, I'll tell you a little bit about what happened to Siddhartha once he left the kingdom. But in terms of Sudodhana, you know, he was heartbroken he was absolutely heartbroken that his that his son left and to follow that path and he was gone for quite a while and it's said that in the time that Siddhartha was gone Sudodana spent a uh, a whole lot of time and effort trying to locate him and after seven years, it's said that after word of his son's enlightenment reached Suddhodana, he sent um, emissaries, he sent nine emissaries to invite Siddhartha to come back home. And the, as the story goes, the emissaries found Siddhartha. They spoke with him and they ended up being converted, <laughs> being, being quite taken by Siddhartha and they joined his entourage, they joined his uh, his sangha, they joined his monastic uh, his monastic community. So upon hearing that, Suddhodana then sent one of Siddhartha's closest friends, Kalyudai, to invite him to return, and the same thing happened. His old friend, upon encountering Siddhartha, who was now the Buddha, chose to become a monk and, and stayed there, but did still invite Siddhartha to return home and Siddhartha did, did return home and in coming back home he did teach his father about the Dharma and he then left to go out and continue his teachings in the countryside and it said that four years later upon hearing about Suddhodana's impending death, Siddhartha once again returned and further counseled and taught his father the Dharma. And it's said that Suddhodana, just before he died, achieved the mental uh, the mental state of nirvana. So that's the story of Suddhodana. Now, Siddhartha's story is, is also, it, it's quite interesting in terms of his role as a father, because don't forget, he left an infant son, Rahula, when he went off on his path. And Siddhartha, perhaps, wasn't the ideal father that one might think the Buddha would have been. So here's what happened with Siddhartha and his son Rahula. So as the story goes, Siddhartha, Siddhartha Gautama, had it all. He had houses, three houses. He had a kingdom. He had a beautiful wife. He had adoring subjects and family. His son, Rahula, was born. And interestingly, Rahula translates to those things to which we are attached or to fetters, not necessarily a very Dharma-like name, and especially to Siddhartha, who had this, this deep desire, this drive to become unfettered. So he got on his horse, and the mythology says that the the gods kept the horse's hooves quiet so that he wouldn't be caught leaving the palace and he rode off into the night not to return for seven years. So there are some writings, there are some opinions that say Siddhartha was the ultimate deadbeat dad. He just took off, left his wife, left his son, his infant son, and took off to follow his own path away, far away, not to be contacted, not to be heard from, a deadbeat dad. Of course, he must have understood that his son's grandfather was a king, so his son wouldn't want for anything, wouldn't starve or have any great misfortune, but that's what happened. So then the whole story gets worse. His wife, Yosad suffers from a massive depression at the abandonment, His son, Rahula, is raised with no father and a clinically depressed mother. And his father was also frustrated and greatly missed his son. So now we skip seven years into the future. We all know what happened between now and then. Siddhartha is out and goes from one ashram to another, one teacher to another, and ultimately finds what he's looking for, uncovers his enlightened mind under the tree, in what is today Bodh Gaya. And then after seven years, Siddhartha is the Buddha, and he returns, he returns home, accompanied by hundreds of his followers. And it said he doesn't ask to see Yasodhara, his wife, the mother of his child, and she remains at least at first hidden. So she asks Rahula to ask Buddha for his inheritance, since the inheritance must be given by the father so as buddha is leaving after having dinner with his father the king for the first time in seven years rahula runs after him asking his father for his inheritance buddha thinks about it and decides either he doesn't want to give it up or that he thinks it's worthless compared with his spiritual inheritance and says to rahula you come with me and you will get your inheritance So now, Yosodhara, Buddha's wife, is torn not only from her husband, but her son. And his father has lost not only his son, but his grandson. They both beg, Siddhartha, Buddha, not to take Rahula, but Buddha ignores them. Rahula becomes the youngest monk in Buddha's following. So, was Siddhartha a good dad? Was he a good husband? I'm not one to judge, but... On paper, not so much. Now, maybe in his omniscient mind, he knew what was going to happen, how this was all going to turn out. And he did what was the wisest and best thing for everyone long term. But on paper, in real time, was he a good dad, a good husband, a good son? That's open for interpretation. So the story goes, Rahula, the seven-year-old monk Rahula, the son of Siddhartha, the son of the Buddha, was given a, uh, a lecture by the Buddha. And it's a big lecture. I'm going to summarize it for you in just two, two points or two paragraphs. Point number one, the Buddha says to his seven-year-old son, the monk, Rahula, Never tell a lie. Anyone who can tell you the slightest of lies is also capable of any evil. Secondly, For every physical, verbal, emotional, and mental action you take, focus before, during, and after to make sure nobody is getting hurt. Those two teachings, never tell a lie, and focus before everything you do to make sure no one is getting hurt, was the the genesis of the teaching that Siddhartha gave his seven-year-old son Rahula, Telling him this is all you need to know to live the good life. So as the years went on, Rahula was trained in the in the precepts, in the monastic discipline. And then it said when he was about eighteen, Siddhartha decided that his son was ready for meditation and gave him advice on how to practice. How to practice meditation. I'd like to share this with you. Quote Rahula, develop a mind that is like four great elements earth, water, fire, and air, because if you do this, pleasant or unpleasant sensory impressions that have arisen and taken hold of the mind will not persist, just as when people throw feces, urine, spittle, pus, or blood on the earth or in the water, in a fire or the air. The earth, the water, the fire, or the air is not troubled, worried, or disturbed. So too, Develop a mind that is like the four great elements. Develop love, Rahula, for by doing so, ill will will be gotten rid of. Develop compassion, for by doing so, the desire to harm will be gotten rid of. Develop sympathetic joy, for by doing so, dislike will be got rid of. Develop equanimity, for by doing so, sensory reaction will be got rid of. Develop the perception of the foul, for by doing so, attachment will be gotten rid of. Develop the perception of impermanence, for by doing so, the conceit, I am, will be gotten rid of. Develop mindfulness of breathing, for it is of great benefit and advantage. Following his father's advice and guidance on meditation, Rahula, it said, Finally attained enlightenment. He was 18 years old at the time. And after that, his friend referred to him as Rahula the Lucky. And he tells why he was given this name. quote, They call me Rahula the Lucky for two reasons. One is that I am the Buddha's son. And the other is that I've seen the truth. Other than this, we know very little about Rahula. He doesn't seem to have been prominent at being either a Dharma teacher or a trainer of other monks. Some believe that uh, Rahula kept to himself in the background so that he couldn't be accused of taking advantage of being the son of the Enlightened One, and it is believed that he died relatively young. So the story of the Buddha, Siddhartha, Siddhartha's dad, the king, Siddhartha's son, the monk, Siddhartha. Gautama, the Buddha, the dad. Quite an interesting story, and I think it, (laughs) among other things, it certainly illustrates the uh, part of the challenge of being a dad, being a father, and decisions and so on that that we make. Sometimes they turn out to be the correct decisions. Sometimes they don't. And, And here it is, Father's Day weekend, a time to think about fathers, our father, our grandfather ourselves perhaps raising our children if we have children raising our children and grandchildren to be compassionate wise well-balanced clear-thinking fathers and happy fathers day to all the all the fathers out there so i'd like to tell you there is going to be a broadcast here on Valley Radio 104.9 on Sunday night. That's, this is Saturday that you're listening. That's tomorrow night. The program is at 7 p.m., and it is The Week, The World, and The Valley. It's uh, a program that is moderated by Heather Stark and Stuart Lisk, both of the, uh, the station, Valley Radio. And in light of what's been going on in the, in the news, this is a program in which Heather and Stewart are going to discuss suicide prevention with Laura Smith, who's the executive director of the Snoqualmie Valley Community Networks. It's relevant, interesting, and it might be, uh, well, it's not, might be, I think it will be worth your, worth your while to tune in to that program. You know, suicide is once again in the forefront of the news following the, the suicides of Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain. You know, just uh, earlier today, this is Friday, this is Friday, June 14th, and earlier today I was reading an article in the Seattle Times headline that the suicide rate is up in all regions of Washington state, but why? No one is exactly sure. The experts say. Just to give you a little, a little heads up about what's going on in our state, the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, released a report showing that rates of suicide are on the rise in nearly every state in the country, and Washington is among them. From 2014 to 2016, Washington's suicide rate was 15.1% deaths per 100,000 people, which represents a 19% increase from the rate in the period from 1999 to 2001. There's now more than 1,100 suicide deaths per year in our state, making it the eighth leading cause of death. And for Washingtonians, between the ages of 15 and 34, it ranks as the number two cause of death. So suicide is, uh, it's, it's here, it's happening. And the, uh, the discussion that Heather and Stuart will be having with Laura Smith is something that I think you uh, would benefit by paying attention to. It's being broadcast on Sunday night, June 14th at 7 p.m. The name of the program is The Week, The World, and the Valley. And Heather and Stuart will be speaking with Laura Smith, who's the executive director of the Stoqualmie Valley Community Network. So I had uh, quite a few people in In our teachings with these suicides, these public suicides that have been going on, I've had quite a few people ask me well what what's the buddhist view what's the, what's the Buddhist point of view of suicide as if Buddhists will have a different a different idea you know no suicide is it's self homicide suicide is 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 murder one is murdering themselves, and normally, I would suspect I haven't. Considered suicide myself. I'm not quite sure if I ever were to commit suicide, if I would be in any kind of rational, clear state of mind. I tend to doubt it. So, right off the bat, the idea of committing suicide with a mind that is distressed and confused and angry and hurt and fearful or whatever it might be that would drive one to do that, to die. To have the last moments of life be experienced with that, that state of mind is certainly not a, not a beneficial precursor to what occurs after death. So the idea of suicide from that point of view is, is not very, it's not very uh, peaceful. It's not very beneficial. But there's a larger issue, and I would like to share with you something the Dalai Lama has said, because he's asked, you know, it's interesting when the Dalai Lama appears here in the West and he opens his meetings up to questions and answers, he's always asked, he's asked about suicide, he's asked about homosexuality, he's asked about changing religions, you know, all kinds, he's got the stock questions and he's got the stock answers. But the uh, the idea of suicide. Is And his ideas on suicide, they're profound, actually, and, and they can be quite complex. But in summary, here is what, this is a direct quote from the Dalai Lama, the 14th Dalai Lama of Tibet, Tenzin Gyatso on suicide. He says, quote, Some people commit suicide. They seem to think there is suffering because there is the human life and that by cutting off the life, there will be nothing, no more suffering. To commit suicide is to escape the pain, to escape the suffering. But according to the Buddhist viewpoint, that's not the case. Because your mind stream, your consciousness will continue on. Even if you take your own life, he says, this life, you will have to take another body that again will be the basis of suffering. If you really want to get rid of your suffering, all the difficulties you experience in your life, you have to get rid of the fundamental cause of that suffering. The cause, the fundamental cause of the suffering being greed, hatred, and ignorance, delusion. That gives rise to the aggregates in the mind that are the basis of all our suffering. He says, in summary, Killing yourself isn't going to solve your problem, just merely shift it to the next life, which will now experience the difficult karmic results of having just killed yourself. So, suicide, the idea of suicide, and this doesn't talk about euthanasia. We're not talking about people with terminal disease. We're not talking about physician-assisted suicide. We're talking, and I'm talking here, about... The taking of one's own life due to stress, due to depression, due to confusion, due to anger, ignorance, whatever emotional state might be bringing that decision to the forefront. From the Buddhist side, and not just the Tibetan Buddhist side, but from the Buddhist side, the idea, the notion of one committing suicide is... it may end this particular life at that moment, but the mind that continues on, the mind that will take rebirth in another vehicle, in another body, is going to take birth with the same inclinations, with the same karmic seeds that brought about those states of mind that led to suicide, and in addition will be further hampered by the karmic seeds that were planted in that mind as a result of having taken one's own life so suicide is it's not an answer and yes i realize that that folks that are in that position and and nearing that decision may not be in a place where they're being very rational where they're being very clear thinking but from the Buddhist ideas from the Buddhist side, the notion of taking suicide is just a, it's a (laughs) no-win, it's a no-win situation. So anyway, listen to what uh, Stuart and Heather and Laura Smith have to say about suicide prevention and part of the community service that Valley Radio 104.9 is committed to providing to the To the community here, the citizens, the residents, the workers of Duval, Carnation, Redmond Ridge, the lower Snoqualmie Valley. Once again, this is Mark Winwood, and this program is The Elegant Mind, broadcast on Saturdays and Sunday mornings, available streaming on the internet at uh, 10 a.m pacific time at www.valleyradio1049.org available as podcast and if you have any questions or any comments and would like to be in touch please send an email to me at the elegant mind at Valley1049.org. I'll get that email. I'll respond quickly. Any questions, any comments? I'd really love to hear from you. And if you're local and would like to participate in our Buddhist gatherings, our Buddhist meetings, we meet the first and third. Thursday of each month at Longevity Foods on Main Street in Duval, across from the subway. Meeting time is 6 to 8 p.m. We gather together. We work on meditation. We discuss teachings. And everything that we do is open to all, non-denominational, not interested in creating more Buddhists or convincing people that Buddhism is the right way or the wrong way or any way. Everything we do is practical. Buddhism is a, it's it's a mind clarifying, it's a mind strengthening uh, curriculum and we love to share it with anybody who's interested in learning more about how their mind works and how to help their mind be as healthy and clear as it can possibly be. So again, this is Mark Winwood, The Elegant Mind, underwritten by the Chen Rizik Project of Duval. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week and once more happy father's day to all to all happy father's day to all all the dads all the moms all the kids happy father's day to the whole community i hope you spend the day in in love and joy thanks so much bye